So if you're uh, just now joining us online, I want to welcome you to Bethany United Methodist Church, where we are leading people to experience God's love, to know Jesus Christ, and to grow in Christ's image. We're glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning, and uh, we hope it'll be a time of blessing for you. Uh, We're beginning a series this morning. I'm going to be talking on on the awakened life and the foundations of that as we move into uh, this part of the season. And uh, I had hoped by the time we were doing this that we'd have a room full of people, and obviously uh, that's not what we're doing um, and I thought about maybe delaying this and uh, just felt a real uh, clear leading from God that we needed to move ahead with this. Uh, and perhaps um, that's a good thing for many of us. I think as we go through today, I'm kind of doing a little intro into the next four weeks. Uh, some of you are going to hear this as kind of a, uh, a, of course, kind of sermon. Uh, others of you are going to hear it as rather extreme, uh, and some of you may struggle with it. And at least, you know, since we're in our homes, you can react however you need to react to it, uh, and you don't have to worry about what anybody else might think looking at you. So maybe it's best. Maybe this is God's way of working things out for the best of all of us. So uh, I want to invite you to join, uh, come with us on this journey. Uh, I'm going to be working. Uh, this is uh, some of the, the material comes out of J.D. Walt's little book on the awakened life. And uh, on Monday night, there's going to be a discussion group on Zoom. Uh, it's one of the small class, uh, short-term study classes that Thomas referred to. Uh, and if you go online and sign up for that, uh, the link will be sent to you to join us. Uh, we'll, tomorrow night will be the first time we start on this. Uh, so we'll be doing that if you, uh, as a place to kind of come together and discuss and, and process some of this information. Um, so as we start this, there's a, there's a verse that we're going to be kind of using this through the series as a theme verse. It comes from Ephesians 5.14. I'm going to invite you to read this responsively with me. So, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ, and Christ will, shine. will shine on you. Now, now, I know I caught you a little off guard with that, so let's try it again, okay? You all ready? Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead. Amen. So... Uh, we're going to be walking into this and uh, moving through this. I, you know, when, when uh, I don't know if you've thought about the, you know, uh, sleepwalking and being awake and being asleep and all that, but when, when our daughter was young, uh, she was uh, prone to do some sleepwalking. Now, I, I don't recall any of that in my family. My wife doesn't remember any of her, so we're not sure where she uh, inherited that from. But nonetheless, uh, when we were still out in the hill country one evening, uh, the kids had gone to bed, and Cindy and I were sitting up doing some reading and talking, and, uh, and our daughter came out, and, and she said, Dad, I can't go to sleep. And I said, okay. I said, honey, well, I said, what's the problem? And she said, well, I, I, I can't turn the computer off in my room. Now, this is 30-something years ago when we didn't have a lot of computers and so forth in our homes, and she sure didn't have a computer in her room as a kindergarten student. So uh, I was kind of going, what? And I said, what? And she says, the computer, it's, it's in my room. I can't turn it off and it's keeping me awake. Oh, well, okay. So I said, well, show me, honey. So she took me by the hand and led me back to her room. And there on her nightstand was her clock radio that we had purchased her. And the radio was on. It was playing one of the channels. And so she said, see, it's on and I can't figure out how to turn it off. So I reached over and I turned it off. And she said, thank you. And got in bed and went to sleep. Now, the next morning, I'm, uh, I put breakfast out on the table and, and uh, you know, feeding the kids before she goes to school. And uh, she comes out and sits down. And I said, well, I said, did you uh, turn your computer back on this morning? And she looked at me, you know, with that look that only a parent can give a child, you know, like you are the dumbest person in the world. She looked at me with that look and she goes, Dad, I don't have a computer in my room. And I said, well, honey, you, you had me come back last night and, and turn it off so you could go to sleep. And she says, 
Dad, I didn't come and ask you to do that. I don't have a computer in my room. I said, well, honey, you know, your mother was out here. She, she can, you know, back me up on this. I mean, you, yeah. uh-uh, I did not do that. I do not have a computer in my room, and I did not ask you to come turn it off. Okay. So what we learned was our daughter slept walked, and actually she, she didn't do it. I mean, when she came out that night, my wife and I both would have sworn she was fully awake and alert. She had absolutely no memory of it. And over the years, we had several other little episodes like that where she would do something, and, and Cindy and I, her mother and I, would be sitting there going, okay, is she awake or not? You know, I mean, is this real or not or what? And, and it was always surprising how hard it was for us to tell whether she was actually awake or not looking at her because she looked fully alert and engaged. A lot of times the way we found out was the next morning when she would have no memory at all of the event. Even after uh, she grew up, went to college, she was uh, living in Australia with some friends uh, and they shared a big house. And she was trying to locate an item one time and couldn't find it and they looked all over the place and never could find it. So they all went to bed and then not long after they went to bed, she got up from her bed, walked downstairs to the garage, got this item out of the glove box of her car went back up, put it on her nightstand, and got in bed. They all thought she was wide awake and, and you know, fully alert. The next morning when she woke up, the item had appeared on her nightstand as if by a miracle, and she couldn't understand how it got there. And they all said, well, you went down and got it last night, and she had no memory of it. So the question I, I want to ask you as we're kind of starting this series is, is really where, where are you in your faith at this point? Um, and I want to ask you specifically about yourself because one of the things we learned from those episodes with our daughter was that you cannot always tell looking at someone else whether they're awake or whether they're sleepwalking. So this is not about looking at other people. This is about looking at yourself and asking the question, are, are you awake or, or are you sleepwalking through your faith? Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask you to come this morning and uh, pour an extra cup of coffee for us if we need that and wake us up in our minds and our hearts and our spirits. Uh, alert us so that we can hear and receive what it is you wish to share with us this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So are you awake or are you sleepwalking? Now, now that's not really a, uh, I mean, I'm asking that question of us as we move through this, but you need to hear that that question is actually one that applies for, for centuries throughout the church. That A lot of times we, we've not been aware of what we don't know or the way we're operating. Uh, I'm going to start with a story out of John's Gospel where Jesus comes to the town and uh, there's a man there as he walks in who's been blind from birth. And, uh, and there's a little conversation that takes place around there. But anyway, Jesus ends up healing this blind man. And, and hearing that, uh, the religious authorities, the Pharisees of that area, they call him in and interview him. And they're asking him, how did he do this? Who did this? And, and what did he do? And, and the blind man's going, I, I, I don't know who he is. I don't know how he did this. All I know is that, you know, he came and he put his hands on my eyes and now I'm seeing and they interviewed him a couple of times and questioned him, and he, and he really couldn't tell them any more than that. They called his parents in. They said, now, is this your son? And they, yes. Has he really been blind since birth? Yes. Well, well, how is it now that he sees? And the parents said, oh, you know, he, he's of age. He's a grown man. Ask him. Don't ask us. We don't know how this happened. And, and so they, they have him back in again. How is it that this happened? And, and he's going, I, I don't know what to tell you, except that this man came and he put his hands on me, and, and now I see. And they said, well, surely he's a sinner. And he says, no, no, you know, how could a sinner have done this? And this discussion goes around. And, and, and in the end, 
the religious authorities simply cannot accept what has happened, and they send him out, proclaiming both he and his healer to be sinners. So as he's being thrown out and, and out in the village, he encounters Jesus. And Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, Son of Man there is kind of a old language. It's not really code language, but it's old language that, that they would have understood, that the Hebrews would have understood to mean the Messiah. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Not only were the eyes physically opened in his life, but the eyes of his spirit and mind and heart were opened to receive the living Christ. John wants us to hear that. And then John continues this story. And in the next verse, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now that you claim you can see. I mean, too often, e e even way back then, uh, we tend to get to this place where we, we kind of develop a self-sufficiency in our faith. You know, we understand the scriptures, we have our theology, we've got it all down, and, and so we got this God, we know what we're doing, and so we live out our faith uh, until something happens that doesn't fit in that. And, and so we operate with what is sometimes called a break-in-glass case of emergency faith. You know, we got this, we know how we're doing, we know what we're doing, we got our plans here, we got this God, we're good, until we're not. And then we break the glass and we say, God help us. And the Pharisees in this moment are telling Jesus, you know what, you, you just don't fit in here. You know, you, you don't fit our pattern. And that's why they couldn't see him. They were stuck in that sleepwalking pattern of being self-sufficient in their own faith. And they weren't open to the presence of the Christ in the midst of them. Now, when you read through the Gospels, there's, there's a number of places where Jesus raises up someone from the dead. And as you read through those stories, what you encounter is that uh, people are always astonished and amazed that the Messiah, the Lord of life, could actually bring new life to someone. In Mark's Gospel, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. That's one of the ways we respond when things from outside of our faith understandings impinge upon us. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. At, at least, unlike the Pharisees at this time, they were astonished. They recognized something amazing had happened in their midst. In Luke's gospel... Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. 
and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, the words compassion that we would use, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. In this amazing time, when once again he restores life, when the crowd just couldn't imagine that that was possible. And then in John's gospel, the famous story of the raising of Lazarus. Before we get to the point of the story we're in here, Jesus has been in this conversation with his disciples when word has come that Lazarus is ill, and he says, we're going to wait. He's waited several days just to be sure that no one would think that Lazarus was simply in a coma or something, but rather so they would know that he was well and truly dead. And, and, and then he comes, and when he shows up, Mary and Martha both accost him as he arrives and said, you know, Lord, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. And he keeps reminding them, I am the way and the truth and the life. Do you believe this? And, and they keep affirming that. And yet, he comes to the actual tomb, uh, and once more deeply moved, he comes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. So, so even after all this conversation, after him reminding them who he is, they still don't expect their brother to be living. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And John tells us Lazarus came out. And the crowd was so stunned that he was there that they just stood and stared. Jesus finally had to say, go and and take the grave cloths off of him that you've wrapped him up in and set him free. And when Jesus comes into the midst of our world, amazing things happen. It's not simply that uh, Jesus is there to, uh, to make us feel better or to comfort us, but, but he brings new life. He raises up the dead. And oftentimes that doesn't fit our self-sufficient patterns, and we're not sure what to do with that. But when we open our eyes and we are open to it, then amazing things can begin to happen. And Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he, he encourages us to engage in this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's why it is said, wake up, sleep, or rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This understanding that that come from the darkness into the light recognizing that, that the darkness in your life is going to become exposed, but, but also recognizing that as the light of Christ shines on that and illuminates who you are, Christ transforms us to become a light for Christ. And we are given the ability to enter into this new life. 
Not by our power or by our efforts, but by the power of Christ living in us. We are awakened into a new life in the Spirit. The definition of this kind of awakening, and and you may have heard this phrase before that goes with this, or rather the, the core belief behind it, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the singular yet most comprehensive solution to all that is broken in our lives and in the world. And, and you've probably heard a statement like that before and thought, well, you know, but I want, I want you to stop for a minute and just, just really think about it. H- how well have we done? Um, how well have we done? I mean, ha- have, have we solved the issues around racism? Have we taken care of, of poverty? Have we resolved hatred in the midst of the world? And have we managed to put an end to violence? Have we learned how to not listen to falsehoods and and misleading statements and and recognize the truth? And how well have we done? I'm not saying that we don't want to make efforts to do the best we can. And I'm not saying that plans and and efforts to do that are are things we should not be involved in. I'm not saying that at all. That's part of it. But, But if the gospel of Christ does not underlie that and bring life into our efforts it seems that the history of the world would tell us we're bound to fail. We need the gospel of Christ, the life of Christ in us. It's the singular, most comprehensive solution to all that's broken in our lives and all that's broken in the world. And we're called to wake up to that and to live into that with all the power that Christ brings to it. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of awakening um, the language around it. This is a, an area that's actually been studied in the sociology of religion quite a bit. And, and in a minute, I'm going to use the word revival, and most of us hear revival as a particular event. When it's used in this context, it's talking about new life. But, but the idea of being awakened, come into a new life, and, and a great awakening when that kind of spiritual renewal spreads out into the community uh, is something that's been studied quite a bit and written quite a bit. And, uh, and as scholars have looked at that, mostly within the Western tradition, uh, they've identified uh, several different kinds of particular moments of awakening in, uh, in Germany and Britain and Scotland, the Hebrides and Wales, uh, Ireland, o- over to the States in New York and L.A. and Kentucky and Pennsylvania, uh, and recently in Toronto, Canada. And so there's all those kinds of particular kinds of uh, notable uh, episodes of that. I suspect that even though it's not documented in in a lot of our material, uh, it's happened in other parts of the world just as powerfully. And and I also suspect that there are parts of Africa right now that are in the midst of a powerful awakening. Uh, But I want you to hear that it's not something that is unknown. It's not something that has not been studied, but rather people have done research and written doctoral dissertations on this and and study. And and, and coming out of that, there's some things that have been summarized that J.D. pulls together uh, in his little book, just some pieces of that. One is kind of talking about the definition uh, that awakening is the transformational process and outcome of following Jesus Christ. It's a personal, communal, and societal movement. It's the transforming when, when we are actually engaged in following Christ, the life of Christ is is dwelling within us, it changes who we are. That's the process, and it's also the outcome of being in that relationship with Christ. And that happens on a personal basis, but also on a communal and a societal basis as well. 
Uh, and, and it takes us from darkness to light, from death to life, from chaos to order, from despair to joy, anxiety to peace, poverty to flourishing, brokenness to wholeness. I mean, you see this documented over and over where it, the impact flows out from people into the community. And it begins uh, in the heart of the individual. It begins there and moves from there to the home, to the church, and to the city and the broader community. It always moves in that pattern. Uh, if you try to get outside of that, if you try to start with the church or you try to start with the city, what you're going to find is, is tremendous frustration because it has to begin in the heart first. And in fact, the place most of the time it begins is in the prayers of, of one or two individuals who fervently are praying into an awakening of God's Spirit. In New York, uh, a gentleman began to pray and, and decided to have this time of prayer at noon. And, and so he offered that up and he posted uh, flyers around town that he was going to have this time of prayer at a certain place in a certain time. And the first week he did it, he was the only one there. Uh, and then a few more people began to show up the next week and then a few more the next week. And soon there were hundreds and soon there were thousands and soon there were tens of thousands. And the Hebrides, it was two older women in the community who were bemoaning the fact that no one was coming to the church to worship anymore and people were falling away from the faith. And they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to affect that. And so they just began to pray. They just began to pray. And God began to work in them and then in their homes and then in their church and then in their community and then across the islands. It's this offering of ourselves up. And when we do that, uh, there's a transformation that takes place. In our hearts, uh, we begin with justification, not this uh, knowledge of salvation from sin and death, but we move to sanctification, a restoration of the image of God. For our homes and churches, we have renewal, which is a, a resurgence of life and faith in homes and in the local churches, to revival, and an overflowing life and faith in homes that, that pours out to neighbors and to local churches and to the community. And in our cities and regions, we have reformation and an increase in faith, a decrease in social toxicity, resurgence of new followers in Christ, mending and reconciliation of broken relationships to a restoration the flourishing of every sector of society, a renaissance of truth, beauty, goodness, and unity, the spread of scriptural holiness across the land. This transformation that's part of the process and part of the outcome as well that takes place. And, and I want you to hear really clearly as we talk about this because over the next couple of weeks we're going to be talking about different foundations and it may sound kind of like this is something we do. But I want to take you back to, to Acts when Jesus is uh, instructing the disciples and he says, I want you to stay here until, you, until you know, the Holy Spirit shows up. And he says, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power hard. In Jerusalem, the, the home and the church, and, and then to Judea and Samaria and out to the ends of the earth, beginning with them, spreading to the ends of the earth. But it's being done by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by their own efforts, but by God at work in the midst of us. I mean, indeed, it's important to remember that, that awakening is not something we achieve by our effort. It, it, it's something we receive by our surrender. All that we do is simply positioning ourselves to be open to what God wants to do and to receive the life that God wants to share with us. 
moving away from self-sufficiency of faith to an utter reliance on the life and the power of God. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to um, follow some of our, our brother Ezekiel's uh, story, uh, the, the prophet in the Old Testament, and, and that's going to be a little bit of a, a kind of a guide to us uh, to kind of look at what it means for God to be bringing new life uh, out of the world and, and into the world. And I want to begin with his call. Uh, in my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And now it moves to a narration kind of language. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Butsu, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I want you to notice, it's in his 30th year. I mean, not in his 15th, 16th, 24th. I mean, he's 30 years old before this happens. He's been you know, living for those many years and serving God for those many years before this is poured out upon him. But you hear the language, I, I man, the heavens are open. I saw visions. The hand of the Lord was on him. It wasn't something that Ezekiel did, but something rather that God did with Ezekiel. And then we're going to move to his, his uh, chapter 37, which is this powerful experience in the valley of the dry bones, which begins, the hand of the Lord was on me. Again, this is God. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I want you to think about what that would have been like to, to be led out by God and placed in the midst of this valley. Where, where the floor of the valley is littered with, with the bones of the dead. And, and to walk among them, to be led to walk around through them and to see all of those bones laying on the ground. What kind of depth of, of, of sadness and, and grief to think of the, the tragedy that occurred that so many had died here. To be overwhelmed with that sorrow and that sadness. And then God says, well, can these bones live? I suspect that most of us would have said something like, oh my gosh, this is a place of, of tremendous death. There's no life possible here. Or we would have gone to the other extreme. And we would have said, oh God, nothing's impossible for you. You can do whatever you want. Although in reality, we wouldn't really think that was going to happen. But Ezekiel's response is this, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. He doesn't try to answer the question. He doesn't presume to even know the answer. But rather, he recognizes the sovereignty of God and puts it into God's hands. Sovereign, only you can know. That's the kind of surrender that we're called into in the process of awakening not trying to figure it out on our own, not trying to solve it on our own, but, but simply handing ourselves over to God. Only you know, God. Only you can bring this to life, but only you know what's going to happen. It's an act of tremendous surrender and trust that takes us outside of the self-sufficiency of our faith that we usually walk in, where we think we know all the answers and have all the answers to a place of radical dependence on the life and the power of God. 
A number of years ago, as I was traveling in different places in the world and, and participating in different events, um, I, I began to, to see you know, the, the power of God working in places in, in Africa and in Central America and in Cuba and, and yes, even here in the States uh, and, and see places where this, this life was being poured out. And, uh, and it stirred me to think that, you know, oh, this is an amazing thing that's happening. And, and the more I thought about it and prayed about it, the more I felt like it, we were just kind of on the edge of, of something amazing happening, that God had brought us right up to the edge of, of something and I didn't really know what that was, but I tried to communicate that, and I tried to work toward that, and, and it didn't seem to move anywhere no matter what I did. And I found myself a couple of years ago in the midst of a prayer service, a worship service at New Room, laying on, front, on the floor in front of the altar and, and just, just praying. I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to lead this. And, and, and when I finally <laughs> let go of it and just handed it back to God, Lord, only you know, only you know, things begin to happen. People begin to come to get together in, in, in this congregation to form groups to, to pray for awakening. Uh, people begin to, to talk to me about what God was doing in their lives and amazing things that were happening. And I began to see that, that when I let go of it, God was beginning to move. Not in ways that I could predict, not in ways that I could control, not in ways that I could make happen. But in ways that only God could know. So I want you to hear that as we begin this time about awakening, that, that at some point you, you just have to be willing to surrender to it. You have to step outside the control and the self-sufficient we live in. And that's, that's so hard for us because the culture we live in is very much one of, you know, you make your plan, work, you know, plan your work, work your plan, those kinds of things. But, but, but in awakening, it, it's a matter of simply lifting your heart up to God and asking to be part of what God is doing and the life of God. And when we bring ourselves into the presence of God with the dark parts of us as well as the the brokenness of us, when we bring all that in there, God does amazing things in our lives and, and then through us in ways that we don't expect or understand. God does amazing things around us. I mean, that's, it's like Paul writes to us, you know, wake up, sleeper. Wake up from sleepwalking in your faith. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine the light of his presence in, into those dark parts of your life. He will take that stuff that, that we've hidden in darkness for so long. He will bring it into the light. And, and as his light illumines, illumines it, that light comes to dwell in us and shine through us. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be uh, talking about some of the foundations of that and how we position ourselves into it. And one of the things I want to invite you to do with me is to uh, begin to... Uh, Pray into the Sower's Creed. Uh, I counted this a number of years ago, and, and I've used it for a while, but it's, it's become something that now is part of my kind of daily ritual uh, of, of devotion to God. And so I want to invite you to say this with me this morning and then invite you to consider using this uh, throughout your week. It's called the Sower's Creed. Today, I sow for a great awakening. Today, I stake everything on the promise of the Word of God. I depend entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit. 
I have the same mind in me that was in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is good news and Jesus is in me, I am good news. Today I will sow the extravagance of the gospel everywhere I go and into everyone I meet. Today I will love others as Jesus has loved me. Today I will remember that the tiniest seeds become the tallest tree, that the seeds sown today become the shade of tomorrow, that the faith of right now becomes the future of the everlasting kingdom. Today I sow for a great awakening. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are the Lord of life, the one who brings resurrection into the midst of this world that we live in. And we confess to you that too often we have settled for sleepwalking in our faith, that we have begun to think of ourselves as self-sufficient, that we understand it and we have it and we know what to do. And so we come this morning asking you to wake us up. We long to be made whole. We long to be awakened. We long to have the light and the life of your presence living within us, to be filled with the light and the life and the joy of the new life that you give. And so, Father, we come this morning and we, we offer ourselves to you. We bring ourselves before you saying, Oh, sovereign, only you know if these dry bones can live again. So, Father, we offer ourselves to you and ask the life of your spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.